to do a series this entire month, and the title of this series is Living Above Sea Level. You know, if you blow sea level, you're drowning if you're in the water, so we want to get above sea level, but I'm talking about S-E-E level, sea level. My text will be the same every Sunday this month, so I want you to memorize it this morning. How many of you are ready to memorize a verse of Scripture? You're a smart congregation. I believe you can memorize this one. It's in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Think you can memorize that? Say it with me. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Say it again. For we walk by faith, not by sight. One more time, I believe you got it. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Praise the Lord. I want to start my message this morning by telling you a little story. I hope it, it fascinated me when I heard uh, I heard Dr. Cho share this, and uh, I want to pass it on to you as kind of a a, a beginning, kind of a, a launching pad to for me in this message for today, because for this first message, I, I want to I want to help us get started right in 2020, get started like God wants us to be like He intended for us to be when He created man in the beginning. Uh, Dr. Cho was um, over in England doing a series of meetings, and he uh, was at a, a church, and he just finished speaking and uh, was ready to go. He had planned to stay in a hotel that night, and the minister in charge said to him, Oh, no, Dr. Cho, we, we just insist uh, that you stay with one of our deacons. And uh, he said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to stay with a deacon. I want to stay in a hotel. Uh, 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 I, he said, I've got money. I, I can stay in a hotel. He said, no, no, we insist. There's a deacon in our church that uh, he and his wife often take care of our guests. In fact, they have a, uh, a little suite that they call the prophet's chamber. And uh, that's where we'd like for you to stay tonight. And he said, about that time, up walk a very tall large lady who was German and grabbed his suitcase in one hand and grabbed his hand in the other and said, come on with me, we're going to the house. And, and he said he followed her to the car and, and on to their house and uh, she said, uh, your suite's on the second floor, you go on up there and change your clothes, get comfortable, I'll prepare and we'll have a tea when you get back. My husband will be here in just a few minutes. And um, so the, the, he did that, and when he came back downstairs, he said, this big German lady was crying. And he said, I don't mean just crying, I mean crying. She was sobbing, crying almost hysterically. And she said, Dr. Cho, I apologize for imposing, but my husband and I feel like we have to talk to you we're in a desperate situation. And she shared with them what they were going through. And she said, we have, we've done everything we know to do, but we are about to lose everything we have. Everything that we work for our whole life is about to go. In fact, this very house that we're in tonight, within the next few days, will be taken from us. And we will be put out on the street with nothing. And she said, we have worked and worked, and we've done everything we know to do. We've, we've, we've tried our best, and we've, 
we've labored with this debt thing for, for months and months on end, and to no avail, we're losing everything. And we want you to help us. We want you to pray for us. We want you to give us some advice if you can. And he said, well, go get your Bible. We'll do a Bible study before we do anything else. And she, he said, I'll get my Bible. And he got his Korean Bible, and she got her English Bible. And he said, I want you to turn to the very first chapter in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And she did. And he said, I'm going to read from my Bible, and you read from your Bible. And, and I want you to see what it says in Genesis chapter 1. And he started reading. He said, in the beginning, God created Adam. And he said to Adam, Adam, I have a great job to do. I'm about to create the universe, and I need your help. Would you please help me? And he said, um, are you following me? She said, well, Dr. Cho, it doesn't read like that in my Bible. He said, well, what does your Bible say? He, she said, my Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And, uh, and, it, and it said, on the first day, he said, let there be light. And there was light. He created light. Dr. Cho said, well, wow, that's interesting. I, I, would, I would have thought that God would have made man to help him. He said, let me, let me continue reading. On the second day, God uh, created Adam and said, Adam, help me now as I create. She said, no, 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 Dr. Cho, it doesn't say that in my Bible. It says the second day he created the firmament and he divided the waters in heaven from the waters on the earth. He said, my, my, how strange. He said, let me see what the third day says. Maybe, maybe the third day he created Adam. He said, and on the third day God created Adam. She said, no, no, my Bible doesn't say he created Adam on the third day. My Bible said on the third day he created the earth and he brought forth the dry ground and the grass and the herbs and the trees and, and so forth and the oceans and the seas. And he said, my, my, how strange. He said, maybe it was the fourth day. Fourth day, he created Adam, and she said, no, no, no. She said, Dr. Cho, does your Korean Bible read that much different than my Bible? <laughs> he said, no, they read the same. Said, uh, but it just seems to me like if I was going to do all this, I'd go ahead and make Adam so I could have some help. And said, uh, what did he do on the fourth day? She said, he created the sun, moon, and stars. He said, well, maybe it was the fifth day he created Adam. She said, no, no, on the fifth day he created the fish and all the marine life and the birds in the air and all of those fowls. And, and he said, wow, maybe he started the sixth day by creating man. She read her Bible. She said, no, no, he began the sixth day by creating creeping things and cattle and, and uh, all kind of animals to roam the earth. And then finally, near the end of the sixth day, finally he created Adam. And Dr. Cho said, my, my, isn't that something? If I were creating, I would have created Adam first and get some help. But he said, it looks to me like God made all of the whole universe. He said, what did he do the next day? And she said, he rested. And he said, my, my, said, Adam must have went to him and said, God, this is our first day on earth. What do you want us to do to help you? God would have said, no, no. This is your day of rest. Church, are you aware that 
man's first day was God's day of rest? That was man's first day on earth. In other words, God created man to rest and to fellowship with him, not to labor and toil and strive to try to make it in this life. Think about that for a minute. And then Dr. Cho said to this woman, Lady, your problem is you and your husband have been working and working and working and trying and trying and trying and doing everything you know to do. And he said, that slaps in the face of God because you're not going to God first and turning this over to God. God will do the work if you let God do the work. But as long as you're going to try to work it out your own self, God will let you do it. And that's the reason you're in such a mess. Long story short, after he talked with her husband and her and got them to cast this care on the Lord, in a few days God worked a miracle in their behalf, and God brought them out of that situation with victory. I want to say to you, and I, I tell you that story to help run into this very, I, I've, I've been wrestling with this for months now, leading up to the thinking about this very first Sunday of this very new year, that this, as we look into a whole new time, 19, the, the, 19, the ni, year 1900 is behind us. We're in a brand new year of 2020. Wow, it's come so fast. And what does God want us to do? And, and the first thing I want to tell you is God wants you to live above sea level. There is a whole world beyond what you can see with the natural eyes. And it's just as real, if not more real, than the, what you can see with your natural eyes. And God wants you to get above what you can see, because above what you can see, there is Almighty God. I can promise you this morning, you may not be able to look up and see Him, but He's there. He's there. And He wants to pull you up to His level. And on His level, there's victory. Over his in his level, there is victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus got the victory over death, hell, and the grave. We ought to be victorious over everything. Jesus said, I've given you the power to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Paul said, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And as long as you give in to worry, and as long as you give in to fear, and live in that realm, you're drowning below sea level. But when you can learn to cast your cares on the Lord, well, I'll talk more about it toward the end of the message. You know, as I said a while ago, man was made to have fellowship with God, and to rest in the Lord, and in to to enjoy. In fact, man's work was to be pleasant, joyful, and engaging. Because the first job God gave Adam was naming all of the, the plants and animals and, and everything in God's creation. And they had fun doing that. It was a job, but it wasn't a laborious job. It was a pleasant job. It was a joyful job. And it included fellowship with the Lord. Listen to me, church. We have, a, we have a problem with segmenting our lives. 
and we have our spiritual life in church on Sunday, and then we go out here like there's supposed to be another life. There's not another life. That life out there is supposed to be as much church and the presence of God and singing and worshiping and rejoicing in the Lord as it is to be in here on Sunday morning. Amen? Give Him praise. Well, there are three thoughts about life and how it operates, philosophies I could call them. There is the Eastern thought of life. And the Easterners see life as a circle. You really see this in a lot of false religions. Hinduism is a good example. They see life as a circle. You live this life, you go around this life, you just keep until you finally wear out this life, you die, you come back as something else and you start that life and you go around and around until that one's over, come back as something else and something else. And you know, that's why cows are so sacred. They, 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 they think they used to be a, a human. I heard, I heard one guy said it. He got to study in Hinduism. He got so involved in it. It got him to the point he was afraid to get a fly swatter, afraid he'd kill his uncle. Um, you know, they, they see it as a circle. Westerners see life more linear. They see it as a line. You, 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 just, you come into this life and you take off on this journey. And, and it's like a straight line. You, you learn to walk, you learn to talk, you finally go to kindergarten, your next step is uh, elementary school, then you go to middle school, then you go to high school, then you either go into higher education or you go into the workforce, and, and it's just a line that goes. But God's thought is more rhythmic. It's, it's like this, it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. In fact, I, I pointed out to you a while ago that first chapter of Genesis. You'll find this phrase six times in one chapter. Now, God doesn't have to say anything but once for it to be true. But when God repeats something over and over, that you, you need to perk up your ears and say, what's he trying to say here? Six times in Genesis 1, God says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. In other words, God did his work. And then he came to, to the end of that, evening and morning. He divided that. Then second day, evening and morning was the second day. Evening and morning was the third day. Evening and morning was the fourth day. Six times he said that, evening and morning. So what God has done, <coughs> God from the beginning, <coughs> excuse me, from the beginning, God divided things up in, in days and then weeks, and then months, and then years, and then even uh, all the way up to 50 is a hallmark, where every 50 years uh, God's people celebrate a year of jubilee. There's all kind of things uh, along the way that, 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 you can, uh, uh, that you can look at in Scripture as God has this cyclical pattern as things go in a rhythmic cycle. Now, you and I both are aware that many, many years ago, way back in the book of Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham. You remember that? When God called Abraham out, Abraham was a man that followed God, and God made a covenant with him and said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and through that nation, I'm going to bless the entire earth. 
So I want you to look for a few minutes with me at the Jewish people and something that's very interesting to me. There are approximately now 13 to 15 million Jews on planet Earth. Now, there's somewhere between 7 billion and 8 billion people on planet Earth now. So if you take the number of Jewish people that are alive right now on planet Earth and look at it as it relates to the population of planet Earth, the, the figure looks like this, and they'll put this on the screen, 0.002% of the population. That is a small, small, small fraction of the population of the Earth. Let me illustrate a different way that may help you understand. If every seat in here were filled this morning, we had a thousand people in this room, and, and you wanted to illustrate how that would relate to, how the Jewish population would relate to the population of a thousand, there would only be two Jews here. There would only be two, Brother Todd Ryan and somebody else. <laughs> there would be two Jews among us. All the rest would be other ethnicities, and it, it, there would, would not be other races, would not be Jews. But look at this for a minute. They're going to put a graph on the screen. And this, this, this graph, I'm not going to read the whole graph to you. We're not going to leave it up for a long time. But I just want you to see something to me is very fascinating. Out of out of all the Nobel Prizes that have been presented, you would expect, because of the population relationship of the Jewish uh, population to the world, that there would be 1.8 Nobel Peace Prizes uh, winners. In other words, less than two people. Um, but they've actually won 23% of all the Nobel Prizes that have ever been given. Great inventors, you would expect it to be 0.6 but it's actually 5%. Ivy League students, you would expect it to be uh, much less, but it's 21%. Ivy League presidents, 50% of all Ivy League presidents um, have been Jews. Pulitzer Prize winners, 51% are Jews. Symphony conductors, 33% are Jews. Academy Award directors, 37% are Jews. Forbes 400, and this is an old stat, comes way back in 207, so I, I, you can go online and update this. But at that time, 31% of the top 400 wealthy people in the world, 31% of them were Jews. Business Week, they, the top 10, uh, top 50 philanthropists, 38% of them were Jews. The Kennedy Center honors, 26% of them are Jews. You can take that down now. Thank you. I just want to point this out. And, and this is just a fraction of the, if, if, we, if we put up the statistics for scientific discoveries and medicine breakthroughs, did you know it's between 30 and 50% in any area of science you want to go to or medicine? 30 to 50% of the inventions, the, the, the inoculations that have given us uh, freedom over diseases and so forth, the breakthrough and discovery and heart uh, mechanics and all of that kind of stuff, 50, 30 to 50% of them are Jews. Now, 
How, in, how, wh- how do you explain that? How do you explain this little fraction of our population doing all of these great, marvelous scientific breakthroughs and all of these great discoveries and, and all of the wealth and so forth? How, how do you explain it? Of course, we would explain that by simply saying they're God's chosen people and God has blessed them. But listen, that's not all of it. Because, hear me church, God's blessings are conditional. You understand that? I don't know anybody that's, that's received more of the judgment of God than the Jews when they were disobedient to God. So these blessings are conditional. That don't mean that just because you're a Jew, you just automatically uh, going to you know, rise to the top. No. Yeah, you, you, you definitely have a, a, an opportunity if you'll do what God called on you to do. So great amount of research has been done to try to figure out why and how do the Jewish people, are, are they that much smarter than everybody else in the world? How do you explain the difference between them and everybody else? I'm going to give you three things that I believe answer that question. Number one, in the, in the Jewish family, there is no identity crisis. We deal with that all the time, especially in the Western world, especially in America. But they don't deal with that in Jewish households. They don't have an identity crisis, and I'm going to tell you why. They, they start identifying to their kids. They start telling them their history as soon as they're able to talk. I mean, they, they, drill, they tell them about their history, and they go all the way back to Abraham. They tell them where they came from. They tell them about the blessings of God. They tell them about the, the different times that their race has been, uh, attempts have been made to eliminate them. They actually have feasts where they celebrate Purim and other things, where they celebrate the miraculous uh, salvation of God, protecting them from annihilation. When, when there were people like the uh, old, old in, in times when, when Esther was raised up, for example, Mordecai had gotten a bill passed through the king to kill all the Jews, and God miraculously saved them. They celebrate it. They know their history. They know who they are. They don't have an identity crisis. You don't find, you don't find Jewish kids at 29 years of age in their parents' basement playing video games trying to figure out who they are. They know who they are. They have a sense of their history. And not only that, at about 12 years old, they introduce them to what adulthood is like. And they celebrate them into that. And they start telling them, we, we expect you to start acting like you got some sense. We expect you to start acting like a grown-up. And so they give them these expectations. And they help direct their lives. We fall into this myth in America where, oh, just tell your kids that they can be anything they want to be. That is a lie. I'm proof positive of that. I became a basketball fan when I was 10 years old. 
And I became a Boston Celtic basketball fan when I was 10 years old. And I'm still a Boston Celtic basketball fan. I fell in love with Bob Cousy and Bill Russell and Havlicek and later on Bird and all the great players of the Celtics through the years. And we're rebuilding now. You watch out in a few years. Yeah. I'm a Celtic fan. And I've always wanted to be an NBA superstar. Don't tell me you can be anything you want to be. It's not true. I could, if I could call my life back to 10 years of age, if I'd have started dribbling a basketball then, and working and working and working and working and working and working, day and night, all the way through, I still couldn't have been an NBA superstar. Spud Webb's the only 5'6 player I ever saw that could dunk a basketball. I ain't the right color. I just can't get it done. I can't jump. Don't tell me you can be anything you want to be. 'Cause Their parents begin to direct them. They see what they're inclinations are and what they're good at and they help develop them and they have to bring them. In fact, most of what they learn is around the dinner table. The second thing, number one, they, there's no identity crisis. Number two, they follow the rhythms of life. When I talk to you about the, the rhythms of life, around the dinner table, the Jewish families celebrate feast and fast and festivals. The rhythm of life. They do it again and again, year after year after year. And they're trained in that. And then the third thing that makes them superior, it's not because they're all that much smarter, but true Jews obey God's law of tithing and God's law of rest. Mark that down. God's law of tithing, they put God first in their finances. And they give God honor to that day every week where they rest from their labor. Now, since we're looking at the Jewish people, I'm going to use them as an example of how to rise above, live above sea level, and also as an example of how not to, because they didn't always do it right. In fact, there was a whole generation in the book of Exodus that didn't do it right. Cost them their rest. You see, back to Adam, when God made man in his own image and placed him in the garden, he intended for him to rest and depend upon God and to fellowship with God and to walk with God, and when he worked, to work with God. And as long as they did that, they were blessed. But when they violated those principles, they ran into serious, serious trouble. I'm going to take you to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, and you can study this entire chapter at your own leisure, because it will, it will teach you a lot about rest. And it's, it's, it reveals that fourth chapter will give you the key 
of how to live above sea level in 2020. I'm going to start with chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then I'm going to drop down to verse 11. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter in my rest, although the work was finished from the foundation of the world. I'm going to stop here before I read verse 11. What he's talking about here is the children of Israel when they started their journey to the promised land. The promised land represents the land of rest. It's their, it's their victory. It's the land that flows with milk and honey. That's, that's a good sounding phrase, isn't it? Flows with milk. In other words, you're going to be prosperous when you get there. How many of you would like to reach that land? Amen? Would you like, would you like to reach that? Well, Paul says, as he's writing, I believe it was Paul that wrote Hebrews, as, as he's writing here, he says, there was a whole generation that started to the land of rest. That's where God intended to take them to. They had been in slavery. By the way, let me stop here just a little sidebar and tell you that anytime you see forced labor and anytime you see a, 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 a job, a boss, or anybody in charge, a superintendent, an overseer of any kind that is hard and oppressive and pushing and driving, and, and especially if you get to the ungodly thing of slavery where they actually put people in servitude under them, anytime you see that, that is, that is a result of sin, and that is a work of the devil. God is not in that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And so they had been in servitude. They'd been slaves, church, slaves in the land of Egypt for hundreds of years now. And now God is bringing them out and leading them to the place of rest. But the writer said there was a whole generation that didn't make it there. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Two things. But I want to drop down to verse 11 because here's the kind of work that you and I are supposed to be doing. This is what we should be doing in 2020. Not, not, the, not the oppressive kind of life. If your job is grinding on you, if you dread getting up in the morning and going to work, then there's something wrong. If your life situation and circumstances right now is oppressive, and, 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 and you've got all kind of stuff going, and you're just striving, and, and you're worried, and you're full of fear. You don't know what's going to come next. That is not what God wants for you. I'm going to give you the only thing in the Word that we're supposed to be laboring for. Here it is in verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent. Or as some translations put it, let us therefore labor. Labor for what? To enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. What example is he talking about? The one he's just mentioned in the, the preceding 10 verses of the fourth chapter. The children of Israel who left slavery, started to the place of victory and rest, and didn't make it, 
And there were two reasons. Number one, disobedience. They did not obey God. And number two, unbelief. They did not exercise their faith in God. That's why you read all through the book of Exodus, the children of Israel murmuring and complaining. It's because they didn't believe. They didn't trust God. They didn't have faith. Now, let me stop right here, and I'll emphasize it more in a little bit, but let me go ahead and throw it out. Worry and fear come from Satan. They're not of God. The devil will put it on you if you'll have it. You've got you've to resist it, but he'll come at you. And the reason, by the way, worry is sin. Did you know that? Look at your Bible. Worry is sin. And it's the sin of unbelief. It's saying, I do not trust God to take care of me. I don't trust God enough to cast all my cares upon him. I do not trust God enough to rest one day a week. I do not trust God enough to pay my tithes and put him first in my finances. I do not trust God. That leads to worry and leads to fear. That's not what we're supposed to be striving for. He said, if you want to labor, labor to enter into that rest. In other words, resist the devil. Say, I'm not having it. I'm not going to doubt God for one minute. God's still on the throne. God is still almighty. God is still in charge. God is still omnipotent. God is still omniscient. God is still omnipresent. God is my God, and I'm his child. My God supplies my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I will not fear. I'm going to enter into that rest. I'm going to, I'm going to strive, doesn't matter how, how long it takes me, how many times I have to quote the scripture, how much prayer I have to put into it, I'm going to strive to reach that point where I just rest in the Lord. Glory to God. Do you know what God wants for New Hope members in 2020? He wants us to rest in the Lord. He wants us to just say, oh, praise God. I'm along for the ride, Lord. You're in charge. You're on this boat, and we're going to the other side. Hallelujah. I'm going to rest in you. God wants you to rest. Can you say amen? Now, I'm going to give you the answer, and I'll close in about five minutes. I want you to turn to Matthew, or look on the screen, Matthew 11, <clears throat> 28 to 30. This is very familiar. It's the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who do what? Labor and are heavy laden. Boy, you just, you weighted down under your labor. And I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For many years, I have thought that the sole purpose of a yoke, yoking up two animals, was so that they could plow together and learn to plow together where they're pulling an equivalency of the load. But in doing some, some of this Jewish research, 
I discovered that many years ago, the Jews didn't use the yoke just to plow two animals together, but they rather used the yoke to teach an animal to stay close to its mother. For example, they would take a horse or a, or a cow or some animal, female animal that had, a, had birthed a, an offspring, and the offspring's growing up now, but the offspring wasn't near big enough to, to pull anything in a plow. I mean, why yoke them up with a, this is, a, this is a, still a pony, but they would yoke it up with its mother. And the purpose of that yoke was so that that animal would learn to stay close to the mother and to walk in cadence with the mother. In other words, you got, you got this mother horse that's pulling, the, that's pulling the, the plow or the buggy or whatever they got it yoked up to, and you, and you got her offspring here. If the offspring decides to go off that way, it's not going to work if you're in that yoke. You're going to chafe that neck in a hurry. Or if it decides to run ahead, it's in trouble. Or if it decides to fall behind, it's in trouble. They train that animal to, to stay close and to walk in cadence with. And when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, he wasn't saying, get in this yoke and work with me, although that might have some significance at some point. But he's saying, I want you to yoke up and learn to stay with me and learn to walk with me. I'll do the pulling. I'll do the work. Our problem is we're trying to run off here for help. We're trying to run out yonder for help. We're trying to run over there for help. We don't realize that if we'll just stay in proper proximity in our fellowship with Jesus, he will take care of us. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll go with you all the way, even to the end of the world. Just stay with me. That's our problem, church. We, we're losing our fellowship. We, we got our lives segmented. We come in here, and this is church, and we go out there, and that's something else. No, 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 no. It's Jesus in the morning, and it's Jesus in the evening, and it's Jesus on Sunday, and it's Jesus on Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and all the rest. Get in that yoke and learn to walk with him, and he'll take care of you. One more scripture, and I'll close. Matthew 6, 31 to 33, another familiar passage. Therefore, do not worry. Say, do not worry. Say it again. Now turn and tell the person beside you. Make sure they get it. Do not worry. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and look at this, and all these things shall be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
All these things. What things? Food, clothing, and shelter. All of them. That's what he just mentioned in the preceding verse. And we're worried. That's proof positive that we're not exercising our faith. When you're worrying, you're saying, I don't believe God's big enough to take care of this. When you're running off out here for help somewhere else, and over there, somewhere else, somewhere, and you're trying this, that, and the other, and you're working yourself right into the ground trying to solve your problems, if you'd just get a little bit closer to Jesus, and you'd just walk in step with Jesus, <laughs> he'll do the work. He's capable of taking care of your problems. David said, I once was young, I'm now old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Jesus said, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these other things shall be added to you. The apostle Peter said, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. If you'll quit worrying, and if you'll rebuke and resist fear, get it off of you. Fear is not of God. Fear's got torment, the Bible says. Perfect love will cast that out. Just fall in love with Jesus. Just love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and say, Lord, I'm casting this care on you this morning. I'm, I'm going, glory to God. I'm going to start 2020. The first Sunday of 2020, just getting rid of all my cares. I'm just going to cast them on the Lord. Praise God. Going to take care of you. Going to take care of you. Praise the Lord. Yeah. He's going to take care of you. You think you got something to worry about? I'm retiring in a couple months. Amen. <laughs> he hadn't failed me yet. Amen. He's taken care of me for 73 years. I believe he can take care of me 35 or 40 more. Amen. <laughs> Casting all your cares on. Let me ask you this question as you stand. Would you stand with me, please? I want prayer, prayer team leaders to come. I want us to pray this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to come and pray. Prayer leaders, if you'll come, please, quickly. Three questions I want to ask you in closing for 2020. Do you trust, do you, are you willing, do you trust God enough to seek Him above your own desires? Secondly, do you trust Him enough to tithe? And thirdly, do you trust Him enough to rest? Saw an interesting thing on the news a few weeks ago. They did, a, they did a survey of fast food restaurants all over America. Did you know that the average fast food restaurant generates a million dollars a year? That's your McDonald's, your Burger King, your Hardee's, and so forth. A million dollars a year. That's average when they put them all together, average. They work seven days a week. Chick-fil-A works six days a week. They honor the Lord's day, and they rest. The average Chick-fil-A generates five million a year. They generate five million a year working one day less 
than all the rest do working seven days a week. God knew what he was talking about in this rhythm of life. You can do more in six days than you can seven. It works the same way with your money. You can do more with 90% when you give God the first 10% than you can with 100% that doesn't have his blessing on it. Every time I ride by Chick-fil-A and see them having to make double lines, I say, the favor of God. They're just obeying the word. That's all it is, just obeying the word. Now, I'm not trying to do a plug for Chick-fil-A, except to say that they have proven that if you honor the word, it works. It just works. And if you will honor the word, it'll work. If you'll cast those cares, those worries, and those burdens that you've got this morning, if you will cast them on the Lord and say, Lord, instead of me driving myself crazy trying to solve all these problems, I'm just going to get in step with you. I'm going to get close to you. I'm going to stay in this word this year. And I'm going to believe what it says. I'm going to live by it. I'm going to walk in faith, not by sight. Not, I'm not going to be moved by what I see. I'm going to be moved by what I believe. The Word of God. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me, please? On this first Sunday of the year, if you're unsaved, I want to give you an opportunity to come and give your heart to Jesus. Not a greater opportunity than this morning on this first Sunday of a new year to, to come and give your heart to Jesus than today. If you're away from God, I encourage you to come home. If you're sick in body and need prayer for healing or any other needs you may have, feel free to come forward. Some are already moving this way. Come on, the altar's open. You can come now. But I especially want to give an invitation this morning for all of those of you who have been worried and struggling, and you're willing to come this morning and say, Lord, I'm going to enter into that covenant that you made. And I'm going to cast this care upon you. And I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to honor you. And I'm going to put you first. I'm going to trust in you. This is going to be a new year for me. The best year I've ever lived. For the glory of God in Christ's name.